have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Father, we come before you and we are thankful that every Lord's Day morning that Pastor David is faithfully preaching your word. We don't have to wonder if we will hear a sound exegetical text preach to us. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Father, that we are going to hear your word, your whole counsel. We're going to hear of how good you are. We're going to hear about your love and your kindness. And we're going to see, Father, that you have one word from Genesis to Revelation. And Father, we pray this morning that as we meet someone different, that you would still speak to us for your word is powerful and sharp. It pierces. And Father, we pray that your spirit would pierce our hearts this morning. We pray your spirit would do the work inside of our hearts. If someone doesn't know you, we pray you change their hearts. We know that you can do that and you can do that alone. Father, for those who need encouragement, please encourage them. For those who need conviction, we pray their spirit would do his work. Please bless the reading and the preaching this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And thus sends the reading of the very word of God. Some of you may understand how the order of presidential succession takes place. If the president is no longer able to do his job, we know the vice president would step in and do the job. We've seen that in past history. But if the vice president was no longer to do their job, you know the speaker of the house would do the job of the president. If the speaker of the house couldn't, the president pro tempore of the senate and the secretary of the state and the treasury, it goes down and down and down and in the 1940s, America started thinking, well, what would happen during the beginning of the Cold War if a nuclear bomb took place, of course, and who would be the person that would run the government? And they came up with this term called the designated survivor. Now, some of you may know what that means because you watch that show on TV. I can honestly say I've never watched that show in my life. I am guilty of watching 24 quite a bit, though, in the, in the early 2000s. But you think about that designated survivor. They pick someone that's not going to be at the State of the Union address just in case something catastrophic takes place. Then that person would be the one that was selected by the president to run the government if all the other people that were supposed to be in the line couldn't make it. Now, Pastor David and I had to come up with the same scenario during COVID. What if Pastor David gets COVID and he's supposed to be here? This is two years ago, for you guys don't remember that, right? 
who's going to preach that morning? Well, we, we had a designated survivor list. Well, if you can't make it, of course, I would be the one. I always had to be ready just in case. What happens if we're having dinner on that Thursday night together and we both get COVID? Well, next in line, of course, is David Prussia. Right? He's a seminary graduate. He would come up here and he'd do a great job. He'd preach to you at the last minute. He would give you a text. He'd preach it and he would do an absolutely incredible job. But what if David Prussia was eating with us? And we kept going down the line. Well, of course, we got Jonathan Mingledorf. He's in seminary. He had to come up here and preach. He likes to say from his old Pentecostal church, he's got that bull in the pen, always ready, right? Well, what if Jonathan Mingledorf was with us? Well, Rob Shepard's always ready. He's a ruling elder. He's going to come up here and he's going to preach. And then we have some other seminary students. If we had to, they could come up and I guarantee you they would do a great job. And you know how it works because some of you serve in Sunday school. You get the little email list. Oh, someone can't make it today. Well, this person could step up and do it. Setup team does the same thing. Well, we don't have anyone for setup team. We've got to find someone who's a go-getter who can put chairs down. Get it done. Singers. Don't have a singer today. Well, you know what? We can text message and people will show up. New Covenant doesn't have a lack of gifts. You know, the church of Corinth is a lot like the church at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. See, the church of Corinth lacked no gifts. Their giftedness was off the chart. Paul actually says that to them. You lack no gift at all. The problem with the church of Corinth was not their giftedness. New Covenant lacks no gifts. We have gifted people, people that know history well, they know medicine well, some people know medicine with all species well. DNA and chemistry, engineers, mechanics. There's people that can run businesses, mental health experts, PhDs, readers, military men and women. We have pilots. We have people who are jack of all trades. We have people that run businesses for themselves. We have women at home that could run businesses if they chose to. I guarantee you that. Real estate agents. Our church doesn't lack gifted people. One commentary, an expert in the church of Corinth named David Pryor says, Paul is telling the church of Corinth that they have the most dramatic and wonderful gifts that anyone could imagine, yet they are useless without love. All the gifts that we have at this church, all the gifts that was at the church of Corinth means nothing if there is no love. All throughout the book of Corinthians, you'll see it peppered throughout that Paul is trying to remind them love is what's important. Yes, desire the higher gifts, but the higher gift is love. He actually says in verse 14, or chapter 14, 14, pursue love. At the end of the book, in chapter 16, let all things be done in love. He wants them to see your gifts that the Lord has given you mean nothing if you don't have love. And if you're taking notes, you're going to see some if statements in verses 1 through 3. And some of you who are here on Sundays, you're going to chuckle. There's five of them, believe it or not. There's five if statements. And what we're going to do is we're going to take all those if statements and we're going to look at that specific gift and what Paul is trying to teach the church 
and the applications that can be made to us. The first thing we'll see is this gift of rhetoric, this oratory skill that Corinth had. The second thing we will see is this gift of intellect. There's some smart people in Corinth. We're going to see this gift of effectiveness, people, people that could make results take place. I mean, they, 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 they're go-getters. Fourth thing we'll see is this gift of philanthropy, people who had the gift of giving. And the fifth thing we'll see is this gift of sacrifice, people who just gave it all. Five points, the gift of rhetoric, intellect, effectiveness, philanthropy, and sacrifice. And as we look at this gift of rhetoric, I want you to look at this first word, if. If. Oftentimes, preacher will uh, maybe share with you what that means in the, uh, the original languages. And it's very important when we read through the if statements to understand what this means in the original languages. Um, for some of you who don't know, uh, it's quite different reading Greek and Hebrew. I like reading Hebrew. And you say, well, Travis, why do you like Hebrew better? Because there's less words to memorize. There's less paradigms to memorize. As a matter of fact, Hebrew, you read right to left. That makes sense in my mind, at least. And they're missing all these words. And people who read Greek don't like Hebrew. They're just missing half the words. I know you're going to put them in yourself, dude. It just makes sense, right? You just read it. There's only like three words, and it makes a whole sentence. That makes sense in my mind. It's not as accurate as a language. But then you have the Greeks. That language is very, very accurate. Very accurate. There are, are rules, and the rules need to be kept. And, the, and when the rules are kept, it gives us a very, very accurate language. The word if is important because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, based upon the rules, based upon the accuracy, that this is a third-class conditional clause. Now you say, why is this important? It's very important. Let me help you understand with conditional clauses. There's first and second class conditional clauses. If you ask me to come to your house for a ribeye steak, you don't even have to know my answer. You know what my answer is. Absolutely. Yes. But if you say, come over to my house, I've cooked something special, ooh, what if it's tofu? What if it's some type of vegan salad? I don't know. What conditions are yes or no? I either can do it or not. The third and fourth classes, I don't know. There's possibilities there. I mean, what if it is like a nice meal? I don't know. And I may come over. I may not come over. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, based upon the moods of the verbs, which is really nerd stuff, and some of the, the, the Mingledorfs and the Prussians would love to get into this with you. But you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a hyperbolic situation because it's a third class conditional clause. It was never meant to be taken literally. Much like some of you, have you ever got a new battery for your car lately? It will cost you an arm and a leg now. Not literally. It's expensive now, isn't it? Not like it used to be two, three years ago. It's hyperbole, right? And the reason that's important to understand is because Paul is going to make five of these third-class conditional clauses, hyperbolic language, so you understand what he's saying. And he's saying here, let's just say, an American way maybe put it in a translation, no translation says this, but I think it may be good. Even, 
if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels. He's speaking about this gift of rhetoric, this gift of speaking. You know, people to this day travel to Ireland to go kiss the Blarney Stone. I don't know if you've seen that before. There's this Blarney Stone that was set to the lower castle in, in 1446, and people go to this castle, and I think they stand upside down or sit upside down and kiss this stone because they think they'll have great oratory skills by kissing this stone. And you know, this isn't new. Throughout mankind, mankind has wanted this oratory skills where people listen to them and, and they're just watching them go, ooh and ah. The Corinthian church, whew, they loved rhetoric. As a matter of fact, as this Athenian democracy developed, one of the things that you could see in Corinth was that government wanted them involved in the government. They wanted them to be able to basically be their own lawyers in court. So they had sophists that would travel all throughout the land and teach people how to speak in a high and lofty language. How to speak in a certain way to persuade the crowd. You also know that the church of Corinth was made up of a lot of different cultures and a lot of different languages. Now some would say, Travis, I don't think this is just rhetoric. I think Paul speaking, is speaking about the gift of tongues or some type of angelic language. Well, remember, this is a third class conditional clause. You know that based upon the mood of the verbs. And the rule says this is hyperbolic language. But even if it is, some believe that this is some type of revelatory gift. This is not what the sermon is about today, but just so you know, in, in times past, Hebrews 1 tells us, God used to reveal himself through prophets and through people who could speak in, these, in, in languages and in certain ways. God used to do that, but now he's spoken to us by his Son. We no longer have apostles. We have no longer need for those gifts. But Corinth loved those types of gifts. Because when they could speak in a certain way with the voice of an angel, people watched them. People could look at them. Eyes were on them. Whoa, that guy could speak. That woman knows those languages. That's incredible. Here comes Paul saying, though, even if you could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can have all the gift of rhetoric you like, but if you don't have love, it sounds terrible. But just to help you understand how to define love as you read through 1 Corinthians and really all of the scripture, it's very well known that the Greek word for love in the New Testament, agape, that was not a commonly used word. The Christian church was like, we just can't use any word for love. D.A. Carson has a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. We, we went through it in a Sunday school once. You should read it. There's a million ways to think about that word and how translations work. It's incredible. Everybody should read it, in my opinion. 
But it wasn't a common word, and the Greeks, the Christians who were Greeks, said, we, we've got to use a new word. Why? Because how else can you explain the love of God seen in Jesus of Nazareth by just using a normal word? Anytime you see the word agape, that was a creative word because the church said, God loves us so much. How do you explain the love of God to somebody? You've got to create a new word for that, don't you? Because it's different than everyone else's love. See, God's love is quite different. God loves us so much that even while we were enemies, he came and died for us on a cross. Even though we were sinners, he died for us on the cross. He loves us that much? As a matter of fact, if you really want to get theological, as Voss would say, he can't stop loving us because he never really started. He loved us before the foundation of the world. How do you explain that type of love to someone? How much God loves us? Kind of have to create a new word. When Paul talks about love here, it's always based upon love for God and love for people. We learned about the Ten Commandments this morning. The first tablet of the law, you could say, is all about your love for God and the and the last five is all love for your common man. And of course, we know Christians are supposed to love God, and then you'll love your people. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Even if you have this rhetorical gifts, but you don't love God and love people the way you should, you sound like a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And Corinth would have known what that meant. As a matter of fact, in these days, there's a lot of different false gods in Corinth. And how do you drive out the false demons? Well, you get people with the gong walking through the street. Boom, boom. And then you get the symbol. Crash, 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 crash. People hated it. It was like nails on the chalkboard. Ah! And they said the demons would run off too. It's so terribly sounding. This is where Paul's getting at. You can have all the oratory skills in the world, all the rhetoric skills in the world, but if you don't love, you sound like a gong and a cymbal that won't shut up. Preachers, take note. Teachers, Sunday school teachers, take note. Those who manage others, take notes. Military men and women, Take notes. Those who give orders, parents, take note. What's really fun about this passage is the de facto or the, the reversal, the application of this. We see it's clear here that you can have all this rhetorical skills and this oratory skills, and if you don't have love, you sound like a gong. The flip side of this is Let's say you have a voice, and my wife's going to love this, but I'm not going to like it as much. Let's say you have the voice of Bob Dylan, which, which I like. There's a lot of people don't think he sings very well. Or you have the speech of Elmer Fudd, your rhetoric of a bumbling, fumbling idiot. As a matter of fact, you want to share Jesus, but instead of evangelism explosion, it's more like evangelism cap gun. You're not very good at it. If you have love, it sounds beautiful to the ears of God. Let's say you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Guess what? You love God and you love people. 
is beautiful to God. See, God looks at motives. It's quite different than what the world looks at. Which brings us to the second part of this sermon, the second gift, which is the gift of intellect. We read, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, you may be thinking, who can know everything? Remember, third class, conditional clause. Hyperbolic language. We know that because of the verb tenses, right? Well, we know that. Wasn't meant to be taken literally, but let's just say you could know all the prophetic powers and have all the mysteries and know all the knowledge. I want to warn us real quick that God commands us to love Him with our minds. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our minds. You must want to know more about God. You must study. You must ask hard questions. Seek the Scriptures. And there's this sick thought today that says, we can't talk about doctrine because it divides. And I'm like, yeah, haven't you read the Bible? Hebrews 4 makes it clear that the word divides. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and it divides. That's the purpose of it. But see, it also unites. Churches all around the world will say the Apostles' Creed. Churches all in Savannah. Many of them will be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves the people. He's called people to repent. He's died for them on the cross. They will offer that just as we do. We're united in this. So there's nothing wrong in and of itself with intellect. But Corinth had made an idol out of intellect. They worship their intellect. Corinth had brilliant people in their church. Much like New Covenant. Our women know theology. Our men know their theology. Even our children know their catechisms. It's absolutely incredible. But look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize. He's writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, not with words of eloquent wisdom. So I come to you with this high intellect and this great rhetoric. I came to you with the simple message of the cross. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, he tells the Corinthian church who worship their intellect, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, is what God says. Oh, you think you're wise? Not as wise as God. That's really what Paul's saying. Verse 22, Jews demand a sign and, and Greeks demand wisdom. The Jews were looking for a sign. Jesus didn't give them a sign. He says, I'll give you wisdom in the word. The Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. And God says, I'll give you a sign. That's what they were seeking. Verse 27, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's telling this Corinthian church, you're not to worship intellect. As a matter of fact, he'll go on to say in, in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Have you noticed that in your own life? You first start learning about the Reformed faith and you got to take a hammer and smash anything that's not Reformed, right? Or you learn something and all of a sudden it does something inside of you. You're like, ah, 
I'm ready. I'm going debate mode. You get puffed up. And here comes Paul saying, even if you have, even if it's possible, we know it's not because this is a third class conditional clause, right? Even if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. You can know all the Voss, Bovink, Calvin, Luther, Baxter, Rutherford, Watson, Manton, Boston, Murray, Piper. You can know all those men. Know everything they write. And if you have not love, you are nothing. Those old Baptist preachers used to quote Theodore Roosevelt. Not FDR from the 30s, but Theodore Roosevelt said, No one cares how much you know till they know how much you care. You've seen it posted everywhere. I think Hobby Lobby's has them all over the place and signs you can buy them for your house. It's still true. If you love me, say anything you want to me. You don't love me, I don't really care how much you know. I think it's true for everyone. Now I'm afraid what I just said may be weaponized. Because there are people that will take what I just said and they'll say, all right, Travis, you mentioned sexual sin. You don't love. Our church will continue to preach about sexual sin because we do love. But it will be with tears in our eyes. Because we know it destroys souls. We will continue to preach on the doctrine of hell but we will do it because we love and we don't want anyone to go. And the only reason you'll leave here today and perish is because you choose to do that. You have hope in Christ and you don't have to. Not a person in this room has to leave without knowing Christ as their Savior. As a matter of fact, we won't stop preaching the doctrines of grace because we want people to understand how much confidence in Christ we have. How much assurance we have because of what the Word says. But if you love people, you don't lord those things over people because it does something to your heart. If I can give you an illustration that may help, um, there's two lines of Presbyterianism. There's the Dutch Reform line. Bavink, we've been studying Bavink a bit. Burkhoff. These men are Dutch. And then you have the Puritans. I want you to think about golf. Um, some of you play golf, some don't. If you don't play golf, let me make it real simple. The further you hit the ball off the tee, the closer you are to the hole, and the easier it is to get the ball into the hole because you're closer. A Dutch Reformed Presbyterian, they're not going to swing as hard as they can because if they swing as hard as they can, they may go to the right or may go to the left. They're going to keep it right down the middle of the fairway every time, swing about 75%. They're going to be dressed in the typical golfing gear with their high socks and the proper hat. They're going to hit it right down the middle of the fairway and they're going to walk into their ball. They're going to know exactly where it is. Puritans are a little bit different. They got their cigar. They're putting the cigar down and the beer down. They're like, watch this. I'm going to grip it and rip it as hard as I can. They're going to try to outdrive everybody. Sometimes they get to the left, <laughs> right? Sometimes they go to the right. But boy, they hit that ball far, don't they? They're passionate about it. When you read the Puritans, 
They're not stoic. That's the last thing. Someone who says, oh, the Puritans are stoic. It's like, you've never read them. When you read them, they want that theology to affect your heart and how you love God and how you love people. That's what this theology does. It causes you to have a passion for God. This intellect in your mind, it should go to your heart and you should love God more and be in awe of who He is and love others more. You can have all the intellect you want, but if it doesn't affect your heart, you are nothing. And you know what the reversal of this is, which is really beautiful? Let's say you have no prophetic powers. Let's say you understand no mysteries at all. You absolutely have no knowledge. Calvin is just a cartoon character that plays with Hobbes. Martin Luther is still the civil rights leader. St. Augustine, isn't that the city right past Jacksonville that has the Bucky's? <laughs> William Perkins. Perkins, isn't that the restaurant that sells the pies? Knox. Isn't Knox the duty station in Louisville where, where they have all the money sitting? Flavel. Oh, Flavel's great. But isn't that the, the, when you go to an ice cream stop, you have all the different Flavels to choose from? The Warfield, right? Where, isn't that a Civil War battlefield in Virginia? Or, or Moody. Isn't that just my teenager who's, who's temperamental? Or MacArthur. You hear his name a lot. Isn't that just a general in World War II? Or R.C. Sproul, isn't that just a drink with moon pies? You can go on and on and on. Molars, isn't that something to do with your teeth? Let's say that's you. You know none of those people. You come into the Reformed Church, you're like, I don't know who any of these people are. But you love Jesus. And you love God. And you love people. And you're just hugging them and sharing the Lord. God knows who you are. And he's happy. He's not so concerned about your giftedness. He's concerned about your heart. And do you love people? We've seen this gift of rhetoric. We've seen this gift of intellect. And now we're going to look at this gift of effectiveness. Results. Paul says in verse 2, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains. You're right. This is a third class conditional clause. Jesus uses the same type of hyperbolic language telling us that, yes, with your childlike faith, you pray and it can move mountains. The truth is, when I pray, I get a lot of no's. Because I don't know exactly what's best. If you've prayed before, and you get no or wait, which is the majority of what we get, it's because God knows what is best. But you can imagine, Paul says, well, even if you had that type of faith, you can imagine the people who would be asking you to pray for them, right? Hey, could you do this, right? Money would be flowing, people would be healed, mountains would be moving. One Corinthian scholar said this, Paul is saying, yes, you may be successful, you may get results, you may be admired, you may be appreciated and applauded, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. You can have all the results. Everything you touch can turn to gold. Without love, you're nothing. 
See, the world only cares about your production. What can you produce for me? They care about your production. How good are you at producing? I want to see results is what the world bases your approval upon. The church may even think you're Mr. Incredible. You're amazing. Look how many chairs you could set up. Or look at how Sunday school you could teach. You may be Mrs. Incredible in the nursery. Oh, the diapers are changed within a second. Like, How'd you do that? It's a miracle. They're fast. I don't know. You could produce results. But in the eyes of God, your results don't matter if there is no love. He's not primarily concerned about your tools. He's concerned about your heart. The de facto application of this is amazing, isn't it? Let's say I have little faith. All I have is that flickering wick. That's all I've got. Move a mountain. I'm just trying to make it to tomorrow. You have little faith, but you have love. Love for God and love for people and you love your Savior Christ and you're just trying to make it. You don't even know what kind of gifts you have. You're something to God. Isn't that amazing? God's looking at your heart. He's not looking at your results. We've seen this gift of rhetoric, intellect, effectiveness. Now let's look at philanthropy. Verse 3. If I give away all I have. Now some preachers may tell you, you need to give away all you have, but I know what you're saying now. Whoa, whoa! This is a third class conditional clause, Travis. This is hyperbolic language. I know that based upon the verb forms and the moods. Now everyone cares about Greek now, don't you? If it's a first class, you could actually put the word since I have given all that, but it's not. It's a third class because the mood, I think it's a subjective mood here, but it's a third class conditional clause. He's not saying you have to give away everything you have. Some preachers will say it that way, and it's wrong. I'll say you're dead wrong. Give them a thick book of, of grammar. Let them read that. But giving is biblical. You know that it is. But so is planning for the future. So is saving. So is paying your bills on time. So is leaving an inheritance for your children. The point is not that you have to give away everything you have. The point that Paul is making here is that even if you do, as he writes in the second book of Corinthians, which is really the third, God loves a cheerful giver. God looks at your heart. Even if I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. You give away things in marriage to get back. That's not love. You gain nothing. If you're serving the Lord up front so people can see you, you gain nothing. Kids, you heard the law this morning. I'm submitting to my parents because I don't want to get in trouble. It's nice, but you gain nothing. You do it because you want to honor the Lord. 
You will honor Christ. Because your heart's right with the Lord. And what's the application of this? These are always fun to think about how it continues. Even if I don't give away all I have, let's say you're being crushed by the economy. You're just trying to figure out how I'm going to get to work the next week because gas prices are high. How am I going to buy food? You're struggling just trying to make ends meet. A philanthropic heart's the last thing you're thinking about. You're thinking about how I'm going to feed my kids. I'm going to pay my electric bill that is more than tripled this year. That's what you're thinking. Give away all I have. I don't know why I can give it all. But you love God and you love people and the little bit that you have, you're going to have people over. It may be bean soup, but you're going to have bean soup and you're going to like it. And you're going to keep showing up to church and serving the Lord. You're going to give out a little bit of time that you have because you have children running around everywhere and you don't know how. Oh, no. It's chaotic. But you know what? On the Lord's Day, I'm going to come here and serve. The Lord sees your heart and you will gain. We've seen this gift of rhetoric, this gift of intellect, this gift of effectiveness, this gift of philanthropy, and now we're going to look at this gift of sacrifice. Look at this last if statement in verse 3. If I deliver up my body to be burned. We know that this is hyperbolic language. It's a third class conditional clause. Paul did not give his body up to be burned, though he did give his body up and it eventually was, we believe his head was chopped off. Can I say that here in this church? Yeah, we can. It's kind of morbid to think about, but that's what happened. I want you to look at that little note A. There's a little letter there, uh, footnote A. Now, Metzger, who's also a Greek scholar, makes the argument that it should read, deliver up my body that I may not boast, or deliver up my body that I may boast. There's an argument among variants of the Greek. Some believe that it should read, and some of them do read, deliver up my body that I may boast, and some say that it's deliver my body to be burned. I want you to understand those are the big fights that people have in Greek. Boring, isn't it? There's really not much cash value in either of these. It gets to the same point. Even if you make the biggest sacrifice of your life. And remember, the Corinthians love having eyes upon them. And nothing says you are more famous and you care about a cause more and that you have more allegiance to a cause than giving up your own life. I'm so for this cause, I'll give my life. And everyone will see how much I care about this cause. Sadly, we see it in false religions with Islamic believers and even with the Branch Davidians with David Koresh and Joseph Smith, you look in the 1800s, that shootout, they believed so much they were going to shoot their way out of it. They believed in it. And Paul says, even if you go as far as to give your own life, but have not love, you gain nothing. Isn't it interesting how he starts with 
rhetoric. Then he goes to intellect, effectiveness, giving, and sacrifice. He goes from the least costly to the greatest cost. He goes from eyes on you and rhetoric. Eh, people can speak. People can have intellect. Oh, you start moving mountains. That's cool. You give everything you have. Good. But sacrifice? Whew. He starts with the least and goes to the greatest. Because he wants people to understand clearly that if you don't have love, if you don't love God and worship Him for what He has done, and you don't love people as God has called you to love, you gain nothing. The kingdom is not gained by your results. It's not based upon what you do. The kingdom is gained when you love God and love Christ for what He has done for you. Here's a fun little thing to do. Have someone else answer this question. Ask someone honestly, what do you think I'm living for? Ask your spouse. Ask your best friend. What do you think I live for? Let them honestly tell the answer to you. And then you'll know. Because Jesus is clear, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know what you gain? You gain eternal life when you live according to love. From the smallest to the greatest. No love, no gain. Which brings us to the final application, this reversal. Which I think is very important for us that, that live in America, which... Most of us all do now. Verse 3. Let's say I don't deliver my body up to be burned. Most of you who live in America, the, the Lord may change it. You know He can do that at any time. But as of now, I don't think anyone's going to be persecuted and killed. You'll never understand the, what the martyrs pray. Oh Lord, how long do you before you vindicate the blood of those who have been slain. And he says, not yet. You probably won't have that opportunity to be one. You may. You may. But living in America, we have it a lot easier than most people do around the world. But let's say we do live in America. We never have that opportunity. But you love. You gain everything. See, God has you right where He wants you. And He's given you opportunities to practice loving Him and loving others. And when you do that with good motives, you gain everything. As we close, you have to understand the church of Corinth, a New Covenant Presbyterian church, have a lot in common. There's no lack of gifts in this church. And what Paul says in verse 8 is very, very interesting. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. One day they'll be done with. We can debate when that is. I love that debate. Come see me later. Tongues, they're going to cease. There'll be no need for that anymore. Really no need for it when you had the final revelation of Jesus Christ sitting in front of you right here, right? Knowledge is going to pass away when you stand before Christ. You really going to think you're going to need a rhetorical skills and knowledge? You really think you're going to need all that? 
But you know what never ends for the rest of our days is love. You will always love the Lord your God. You will always love Christ and praise Him for His death on Calvary. And you will love your fellow brother and sister in Christ forever. And Paul is telling this church in Corinth, remember, love lasts forever. And if you have been loved by God and you have been loved by Christ, practice that in your gifts. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His word.